Hey everybody and thanks for coming back to Serial Zombie Mom. I want to apologize again. <laughs> I swear as soon as I, I plan things out, something goes a little awry. Um, <clears throat> but this is the culmination of that and I've, and I've gotten into a, um, a little point where I can kind of get all this fixed. So um, I apologize for things being just a little bit behind. It's not as bad as it had been. Um, at least I don't, I don't believe so. Um, but all of my editing software and all that stuff, I've given everything a little bit of a, a revamp. So, um, hopefully shouldn't have any more, any more issues at this point. So <clears throat> today I'm just going to go ahead and kind of jump into my first case. Um, <clears throat> I apologize. I've been having some allergies. Um, but this first case, I just kind of want to give you a trigger warning ahead of time. This woman is a beast of a woman. <clears throat> this case is a beast. This case is kind of graphic. Um, it's a little bit on the traumatic side. A lot of stuff is going to happen here. So it's a lot to wrap your head around. Um, and a lot, of get, a lot to get through. Okay. So Catherine Knight, who is the same age as my parents now, um, was born October 21st of 1955 in Tenerfield, New South Wales, Australia to Barbara Ruffin. Now, she was raised in an unconventional and very, very dysfunctional family. Barbara had four sons with her husband, Jack, in Aberdeen, New South Wales. Now, <clears throat> during this relationship with Jack, she decided she was going to cheat on him. She began an affair with one of his co-workers. Now, this co-worker's name was Ken Knight. Now, both families were pretty well known in the area, um, so when the details of this affair kind of got out, it was the culmination of scandal and gossip in the community, okay? <clears throat> Everyone was talking about it. Everyone was kind of whispering behind everybody's back, um, and there wasn't really much that could be done to, to end it. So... Barb and Ken leave Aberdeen and start their own family. They're like, okay, well, you know, we've, we've screwed up our own families. Let's, let's go and try and have one together. <clears throat> so the, the four boys that she had with Jack, the two older ones actually stayed with Jack. And then the two younger ones are sent to live with an aunt in Sydney. Now, <clears throat> this town, like these towns in New South Wales is not far from Sydney. So... It was within a decent distance to visit. <clears throat> now, Barb and Ken go on to have three or four more children, including a set of twin girls born in 1955. One of these twins was Catherine. Now, she was the younger of the twins, and when she was four, um, Jack actually died, leaving the older boys orphaned, for a better, <clears throat> for lack of a better term. You know, here they were being cared for him for so many years, and now they've got to go back and live with their mother, who they haven't really lived with and have had kind of a not-so-great relationship with over the last few years. So now, <clears throat> these two older boys are forced to go and live with Barb and Ken. Now, Ken was a severe alcoholic who was very, very violent. He was very abusive and would even rape Barb up to, like, eight, eight to ten times a day. Like, she was constantly being raped. He had to have his sexual frustrations taken out. 
So she in turn vents to her children about their sex life and how much she hates sex and how much she hates men. Now, <clears throat> there's one thing to be open with your family and with your children about life and sex and things and, you know, so that they're not surprised by stuff and that they, they can look at things with a better outlook, you know, but when you're constantly sitting there and you're complaining about your sex life and, oh, this isn't good enough and that's not good enough or this sucks and he does this and he does that, that's not the kind of stuff that your kids need to hear. It's not the kind of stuff that they need to know about. So there's even a time when Catherine's a bit older and Catherine comes to her and starts complaining and she's like, you know, so I've got this sex life with this guy, you know, this is how things are going and he really wants me to do something sexually that I'm not ready to do or I don't want to do. So her mother turns to her, looks at her and says, not in a concerned or understanding manner like we would expect our moms to do, but responds to her with, put up with it and quit complaining. <clears throat> so, you can see where she may have had a very twisted ideal or ideology of her home life and stability and, you know, what things should be like. Like, her whole ideology of life was tainted at that point. Like, it was just... She already grew up looking and seeing all these things she didn't need to see. Like, it was not the best environment for anyone. Like, and now it's just kind of solidified that that's how it's supposed to be. Now, according to Catherine, she stated that when she, while she was um, young, that she was actually sexually assaulted by several of her the members of her family up to the age of about 11. Now, she doesn't say exactly who... Um, but she does say that her father had never actually crossed that line with her. So, you know, it could have been brothers, it could have been cousins, it could have been uncles, it could have been, you know, she doesn't ever really say, but she does say it's members of the family. Um, now, while she wasn't really close to anybody in the family, besides her twin sister, like, obviously with twins, you're going to have a friendship and a connection there that you're not going to have with other people. My husband's a twin. I have a set of twins. You know, so there are these, you see these, these connections between these two people that, you know, are really, really close. And who's going to understand you better, you know? So she did, however, have a very, very close relationship with an uncle, Uncle Oscar. Uncle Oscar was a champion horseman. Now, unfortunately, in 1969, he took his own life. So, through the years, she has been haunted by that. She has had consistent issues about losing this uncle. And she's also stated that through the years, that his spirit has come to her on multiple occasions to, I guess make her feel better, make her think that things are okay, you know, or I, who knows. <clears throat> now, after back, after moving back to Aberdeen, um, she attends Muscle, Musclebrook High School. Now, she was a larger girl, tall, big boned, you know, um, most of her classmates remember her as a loner or a bully, 
And, you know, this kind of reminds me of the bully girl from Bridge to Terabithia. You know, she's a little bit on the bigger side. She's bigger than all the other kids. You know, so she's probably bullied herself. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of the, the ideology I have of, of what she may have been like, um, you know, in her preteen and early teen years. So, now I teach my kids about this, you know, when they're being bullied, and I tell them that sometimes the bully is the one being bullied at home, and that we, when you don't know about their home life, the only thing that you can do is either try to befriend them or just kill them with kindness. Because when they see that it's not going to bother you, they're not going to keep bullying you. And sometimes they just need someone to be good to them. Sometimes they just need someone to tell them, like, that's not normal. <laughs> Um, you know, you want to know what it's like to have a normal family, like, come on, you know, you, you're welcome. You're welcome here, and I have no need to be mad at you, like, you have no need to be mad at me, like, you know, let me show you what it should be like. So, a lot of people don't realize this, or they are closed off to it, or they think, you know, how could this be? You know, they don't realize just how badly, um you know, some kids' home lives are, and their, their, you know, escape from it is going to school. So what we've experienced here through the, this pandemic and everything with COVID, um, you know, we're dealing with a lot of mental health issues, families and, and the suicide rates and all these things have gone up. So I just want to put that out there that, you know, <clears throat> we don't know what's going on in the lives of our friends or, um, our kids' friends' families and, and that kind of thing. So if we can be open and, and um, available, you know, to be there and try to make a change, you know, do so. Whether it's just letting them come over for dinner and just getting a, a few extra hours out of the home or whatever. You know, be willing. Anyway, rant over. <laughs> um, with Catherine's uh, crazy home life and backstory, she kind of had no chance to to be more than what she was. She was known to be a model student, even re earning rewards for good behavior. But she was, when she was enraged, it was bad. All right. Like so bad that she actually assaulted a boy at school with a weapon. And that caused her to get injured by a teacher who was also acting in self against in self-defense against her. So, these bouts of rage would get fucking terrifying. Now, at 15, she leaves school. So, all this stuff is happening before she's 15. <laughs> and somehow, even at 15, and somehow she had made it all this, far, this way through school, but she never learned to read or write. That makes me wonder how she, how she did it. How did she make it this far in school... You know, did she bully the teachers? Did she um, get them to pass her just so they'd get her out of the class? Like, like what is the deal? Like, we're seeing this some now that kids are getting passed before they should be able to pass just so that they can keep going. But if they're not ready, like, just fucking hold them back. It's better to go ahead and do it when they're younger than make it ha have to happen when they're older and then it causes, you know, issues. So, anyway, you know, she leaves work, leaves school um, at 
15, winds up going to work in a clothing store. She works there for probably about a year or so. And then she is accepted into what she would call her dream job. Now, what would you think a girl, you know, even someone like this, a a girl's dream job is going to be at 15 or 16? You know, we don't really know what we want to do with our lives at this point. But for Catherine, it was a no-brainer. Her dream job was cutting up awful, or awful, at the local abattoir. Now, awful, or awful, if you don't know, is the waste and dead or, well, and animal entrails that are not used in food. So she was the one cutting the entrails from the animals. She would skin them. She would, you know, take out all the bits and pieces. Okay? Now, she did such a great job that she was very quickly promoted to boning. And would even, like, demarrow the bones. <clears throat> She was given her own set of butcher's knives and was proudly displayed above her bed at home. Like, she knew, and this is what she says, these are her her words, you know, I always wanted them to be handy if I needed them. So she puts them above her bed? (laughs) I mean, would you really be afraid that someone's going to come in that you think that you're going to have to have all of your butcher's knives above your bed? So, I guess she used it as an art piece. I don't know. Now, as you can tell, she absolutely loved her job. Alright? I mean, absolutely fucking loved this job. She got to cut things up and, you know, it was, I guess, easy for her. Now, what about her romance? What about her romantic life. Well, enter David Stafford Kellett. Now, David Kellett was a co-worker of hers from the abattoir. He had actually been a previous railway worker, and they had met in 1973. So, he was apparently a very hard drinker, known to kind of get into bar fights, things like that. Um, But the drinking was something he used as a coping mechanism to deal with PTSD that he had sustained from a few incidents working on the railway. One of which he had had a friend killed in front of him in a shunting accident, and another he actually had to help rescue and remove bodies from a school bus after a train hit it. Six children died in that accident in 1968, and after a few issues at the railway, after these events... And because of his drinking, he was let go and had to take a job at the abattoir. Now, when he and Catherine start dating, he was known to sometimes also partner with her twin sister. And anytime a fight would break loose and Catherine was there, like, she'd jump in with fists, ready to back him. So, she even became the dominant one in the relationship at one point, eventually convincing him to marry her in 1974. 
Now, they rode up on her motorbike. Kellett was obviously drunk, crazy intoxicated, to the point where he was having to be held up. But her mother, Barb, decides at that point to give Kellett some advice. She knew her daughter, and she knew her daughter well. Because she tells him, and I quote, You better watch this one, or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way, or do the wrong thing, and you're fucked. Don't even think about playing up on her, which meant cheating on her, or she'll fucking kill you. That was the mother talking. That is what her mother tells David Kellett at the fucking wedding. Now, she's got something to lose here. She's got a screw loose somewhere. And that's something else that the mother said. You know, she told me she's got something loose. She's got a screw loose. So, she knew. And a lot of this could have possibly been the fact that, you know, she dealt with a lot of really bad things at home between the abuse and the sexual abuse and all these different things and seeing what her mother went through and whatever. But, I mean... They kind of enabled that. They were part of it. So they can't put all the blame on her and her mental state. Um, you know, they have to put some blame on themselves. But they didn't. Now, apparently, before getting married, um, Catherine had been told a few times that, you know, overhearing people about about their wedding nights, that, oh, yeah, we did it four or five times, and we did it this many times on our wedding night. All right, unless you're like, unless you've saved it for marriage or abstained, you're probably not going to do it that many times. <laughs> Speaking from experience here, it's, come on, by the end of all of that stuff, you're going to be fucking exhausted. You're going to be tired. You'll be lucky if you can get it out the first night. Like, really. So the night of the wedding, Kellett says that she actually tries to strangle him. You know, they have sex about three times, and he's drunk and exhausted, and he falls asleep. Well, she wants to go for round four, so she gets pissed off because he's fucking passed out. And she's still fucking horny. So, when she climbs on top of him, and he's not alert enough to do anything, she gets pissed and starts strangling his ass. Now, the marriage obviously proved to be very volatile, um, but it lasted for about 10 years. Now, during the marriage, there were quite a few issues. Kellett often cheated, and during the relationship, a few major incidents had occurred. So, I'm, I kind of bulleted a couple of these. So, one night, he comes in super late after a darts competition. You know, apparently he made it to the finals, or he made it to the championship, or some kind of shit. And Knight, who is very, very pregnant at the time, has burned up all his clothes, all his shoes, and hits him in the head with a fucking frying pan. She fractures his skull. You know, we all see the, the little, you know, silly memes and the, you know, uh, silly old movies and shows where somebody gets smacked up the head with a frying pan. 
you don't actually hear it being done very often. You might hear a woman joke about doing it to her husband or, you know, whatever. But you don't hear about it very often. Well, she did it. Now, he runs to a neighbor's home with this skull fracture and collapses. He's concussed. So, while searching for help, you know, he's, he's at this neighbor's door and knocks out. So, police want to charge her with battery, but she goes over and convinces him to stop. Convinces him to drop the charges, said that she got very, very hormonal because of the pregnancy. The babies do any time. And, you know, she just got hormonal and scared that he was out cheating on her. So, they let it go. May 1979, two months after their daughter, Melissa Ann, is born, he leaves Catherine for another woman and moves to Queensland. The next day, she's actually seen pushing Melissa in the pram. But not just like any normal person. She is violently, and I mean violently, throwing and jumbling the pram around. Smashing it into things, like, just about knocking it over a couple of times. Like, just violently moving it around. Like, that baby could not have been very secure in there. You know, you gotta feel sorry for these kids here. Now, she was diagnosed with postpartum and was made to spend a few weeks in recovery. Now, after she gets out, she places Melissa on a fucking train track shortly before a train is to arrive. She then goes and steals an axe and starts threatening people around town. Like, this bitch is obviously fucking crazy, right? Now, thank God, an older man who was forging near the, ra- near the railway, and I think his name was Old Ted, like, that's what he went by, um, found and saved Melissa moments before the train actually passed. Catherine is arrested and again put in the hospital, but she signed herself out the next day. Now, I'm not sure if the guy was, like, a homeless guy or, you know, or what, but I know he was foraging in the area when he found, when he found this baby. So, thank God he picked her up and, and, you know, didn't leave her to the dingoes or the, or to the train, you know. Um, now, a few days later, after she gets out of the hospital again, because she signs herself out, she slashes the face of a woman who she demands to drive her to Queensland. So she knocks on this woman's door, and this woman's there, she's got a couple of kids with her, and she's like, you're going to take me, and you're going to take me to Queensland. I'm going to find my husband, and I'm going to kill him and his mother. And she's like, and if you don't, like, I'm going to kill you, like, I'm going to hurt you. She she slashes the woman's face, the woman's like, alright, fine, everybody, load up in the car. (laughs) Just don't hurt me, don't hurt my kids, like, I'll take you where you need to go, whatever, just leave us alone. So, while, while headed there, they stop at a service station, and she says, I'm going to stop here first because I'm going to kill the motherfucker who fixed his car so he could get away from me. <laughs> so, she goes to try and kill this mechanic. Now, the police were called, um, and, you know, I guess, I guess it was the woman that got her face slashed, gets away while she's inside trying to talk to the, the mechanic or try to deal with him, and she calls the cops. So, but as she does this, she takes one of the boys hostage. She threatens him with a knife, but the police are able to disarm her, 
and she's put into Morissette Psychiatric Hospital. Now, after telling Kellett about this, what does he do? What would any normal person do when they find out that their ex is trying to kill them? You either go into hiding, you stay away, you get restraining orders, you do all that. Not Kellett. Not David Kellett. He learns about this. He leaves the new girlfriend in Queensland, comes back to Aberdeen with his mother in tow to support Catherine. What? The fuck was he thinking? Did she make it out to be, oh, I'm just so distraught, I just want you to come home? You know, what? It's just, ugh. Now, I think it was a little bit more out of fear for his life than really to support her. Like, okay, if I just bow out and deal with it and come back and whatever, maybe she'll eventually get tired of me and leave on her own. Now, she was released from the psychiatric hospital on August 9th of 1991, and they all moved to Brisbane. David Kellett, his mother, Catherine, Melissa Ann, they all moved to Brisbane. On March 6th of 1993, they have another daughter, Natasha Marie. And in 1994, they move, she moves, and she leaves Kellett, um, and moves into her parents' home in Aberdeen, returning to the abattoir she worked at before. Kellett had left her again at that point, and unfortunately, she had hurt her back and was put on disability shortly after going back to Aberdeen. So, she winds up on government assistance, she winds up with government housing, like, that's where she's staying. Now, immediately, she jumps into a relationship with another David, 38-year-old David Saunders, who's a local miner. Now, he moves in with her and the girls but keeps his own apartment on the side, which kind of seemed a little strange, but I guess I can kind of understand initially when first in the relationship, yeah, I'm going to spend some time over here, but you know, I've got my place just in case we ever, you know, we just want to make sure that, make sure this shit works first. Well, but after so long, they're together and he keeps the apartment and keeps the apartment. So she stays jealous, very suspicious that, um, that he was out, you know, cheating she didn't trust him when she wasn't around, and she often, you know, threw him out. So, where the hell was he going to go? I mean, obviously, he's going to go back to his old apartment. So, then they'd reconcile, they'd get, they'd fight, she'd throw him out, they'd reconcile again, and, you know, after um, going to him and begging, to him to re- begging for him to return, you know, he, he seemed to always come back. Now, May of 1987... To show him what would happen if he ever had an affair on her. Now, keep in mind, they're not married. They're just together. So, if he cheats on her, what she would do to him. She grabs his two-month-old dingo pup and cuts its throat right in front of him. Then, knocks him out with a frying pan. So you can see, she's got a very skewed idea of how to handle a relationship. 
Now, in June of 1995, she gives birth to a third daughter, Sarah. Now, Saunders decides to put a deposit on a home for her and the kids now that he was a father. So she decorates the home. She gets everything, you know, to what she feels is a family home. But let me explain how she decorates this home. I got major Ed Gein vibes here, okay? Animal skins, skulls, horns, rusty animal traps, leather jackets, old boots, machetes, rakes and pitchforks. Just all kinds of crazy. Even hanging these things on the ceilings. Now, we see in old times, and when we when we go and visit some of these little old, uh, like, buildings and stuff, sometimes they would hang certain things from the ceilings for storage. But you can't, like, it's just not a normal thing that we see nowadays. But this was her family home. Now, shortly after this, an argument causes her to hit him in the face with an iron. She then stabs him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. When he goes back to his own place, he finds that she had been there and she had cut up all his clothing, all his clothing and knew that, like, she was just going to come after him. So he goes into hiding. Now, out of revenge, since she couldn't find him, she went to issue an apprehended violence order against him. So this is kind of like a CDV restraining order. So that relationship is over. 1997, enter John Chillingworth, a 43-year-old ex-co-worker from the abattoir. And the two had been in a relationship where Knight got pregnant. She gives birth to a baby boy, Eric. Now, this relationship is was only about three years and pretty tame. And not really any major incidents were actually reported. This was supposedly a seemingly happy relationship. No issues, no arguments, no fights, no nothing. But that's because she was cheating. She leaves him for a man she started having another affair with. This was John Charles Thomas Price. He was born April 4th, 1955, again the same year as my parents and the same year as Catherine. And he was a father of three. Now, when he began the relationship with Catherine, he was reportedly um, on a separation from his wife. Now, he was supposedly a very amazing man uh, and quoted as a terrific bloke. Um, and everyone around the area liked him. Like, just great, great guy. So his own marriage had ended in 88. And while his youngest child remained with the ex-wife, the older two chose to stay with him. Now, he always had thoughts of being able to reconcile and get back together with his wife. Like, he still loved her. Um, he still wanted to see where that could maybe go. So, he wasn't looking to settle back down anytime soon. Now, he was aware, as well, of Catherine's violent reputation when she moved in with him. Everybody around town knew she was a bit batshit crazy. 
Everybody knew she was violent. So that makes you wonder, why the hell are all these people getting involved with her? Why the hell, and how the hell, when you see her picture, how the hell was she getting so much dick? Like, seriously, like, how, how the hell was this shit happening? So, you know, I joked around with my husband when I told him about this this case, and I was like, damn, she must have had some damn good, because uh, must have been amazing in bed, because what the hell? You know, I mean, I guess maybe crazy is sexy a little bit. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Ask my husband. <laughs> I know I'm a little, I'm a little wild, but I mean, knowing that she's like that, why the hell would you put yourself in a, in a position to be in a relationship with this crazy ass individual? So anyway, he knew. Now she meets his children, his children like her. Um, he was making really great money at the mines and apart from a few arguments, the relationship started out pretty great. Now, in 1998, he refuses to marry her. Refuses to marry her. No, it's not going to happen. You know, after getting out of this relationship, I, I, I really don't want to get into another one. Like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to get married. So they fight over this and they fight over this quite often. I don't know what it was about her fascination about being married, but he didn't want to have it. Like, it was just, it was just not going to happen. So to get back at him, she videotapes items that he allegedly had stolen from work. Now, let me explain this just a tiny bit. These items that he supposedly had stolen from work were items that were out of date and they were getting thrown in the trash anyway. So he thought, you know what, I'll just, I'll just take it home, you know, get some use out of it, even though it's a little expired, you know, and he had a few things that were like that from, from his job. Now, she takes videos of these items it's obviously something from his work, and she sends the videos to his boss. Though the items were out of date and considered trash and marked out as rubbish, he gets fired from his job. His boss kind of had no, like, say-so. It had to be done. The item in question in this video <laughs> that she sends is like a $20 fucking first aid kit that's already missing probably, you know, dozens of band-aids and, and Lord knows what else. So over a handful of band-aids and some antibiotic ointment and that kind of shit, he, get, he loses his job. The same exact day, when he gets home, he kicks her out. He's like, you gotta get the fuck out. Like, you can't understand the fact that I'm not ready to get married right now, then you need to get your fucking ass out. I'm done. So a few months later, this lasts about, I think, three months or so, then they kind of start to resume their relationship, at least physically. Like, he wouldn't let her move in. Like, you're not coming to move back in, but... You know, we can, 
still mess around a bit, you know, spend some time with each other, but I'm, I'm still not going to get married. So their fights at that point were so many that his friends were like, I'm not going to be around you. Like, we don't want anything to do with you while she's around. Like, if she's going to be around and, you know, then count us out. But if she's not around, you know, you can come and hang out whenever. Now, in February of 2000, an argument escalated to the point of Knight actually attempting to stab him in the chest. He takes out a restraining order on her to keep him and the kids safe. But by the end of the month, he had told his friends and co-workers that if he ever goes missing, or if something happens and he doesn't come to work and doesn't call, then she's probably killed him. Now, they begged him not to go home. He finds out that Knight sent his kids to a friend's house for a sleepover. And he spends the evening at a neighbor's before going home and, and going to bed. Now, that day, she goes and buys herself some new black lingerie. Um, and there surfaced a really strange video <coughs> of her and her children um, like making comments that have kind of since been interpreted as like a very crude living will. Um, stating that she might have, I don't know, it's, it's really, it's really weird because it's kind of like, you know, what are you going to do if I'm not here? Um, you know, this is what I want when I'm gone or, you know, some really strange, some really strange things. Now she later goes to, um, John's home and he's sleeping Well, she goes in. She sits down, she watches TV for a bit, then takes a shower. She wakes up John, they have sex, he falls back asleep. 6 a.m. the following day, a neighbor realizes that Price's car is still in the drive. He had not been to work. His boss sends a worker over to check on him, especially after his warnings. And the neighbor and the co-worker both try knocking on the door, trying to access the home. They can't get in. Like, they, something's not right. When they go by the front door, they, they see a few drops of blood. A little smear of blood. So they immediately call the police. The police get there about 8 a.m. Now, when they break the door down, they're faced with a sight that none of them could have even remotely been prepared for. Now, to get started, when they come, they're knocking on the door, they can't get anybody to answer, and they peek through the mail slot. Now, unfortunately, they couldn't see very much. There was something obstructing the view from the mail slot. It looked almost kind of like a curtain. So they're like, well, what the hell? We can't get... So they break this fucking door down. They push past this curtain. It's kind of strange, weird, heavy curtain. And they push past it. And Knight is comatose from taking a large number of pills. They believe that, you know, she actually tried to kill herself. She was actually comatose for a few days after this. I believe it was like four days. And then they find his body. Catherine had taken a butcher knife from her bedside 
while he was sleeping and stabbed him 37 times in the front and back, entering many vital organs. Now, evidence showed that he actually awoke at some point during the attack, but couldn't really fight her off. And during the scuffle, he managed to be chased to the front door to get outside. Mm -hmm. Now, in the evidence, you actually can see the blood stains and smears on the wall from where he's leaning on the wall and stuff go from mid-level to the floor. So you can see where he started off and had more energy and he had a little bit more get up and go. But then by the time he made it to the front door, like he was on all fours and crawling. She drags his body downstairs after he dies of his wounds. And she skins him. They have realized that this curtain in front of the door was his skin hanging from meat hooks. She had skinned him in one fucking piece. She also comes in like, I, and I think this might be a little bit wrong. According to the, the, Reports that I looked at, it says, you know, after all this, she goes into Aberdeen and withdraws $1,000 from an ATM. Then she comes in a few hours later and decapitates him, cut up, cuts up part of his body into pieces, and so on. And I'll go, I'll go into that. I think she came in while he was sleeping. She does all this. She takes a shower, you know, whatever. They have sex. I think at that point... He falls back asleep. She goes and uses his ATM, withdraws the money. They have no idea what the fuck she did with this $1,000, okay? They have not been able to trace it, except for the fact that she took the money out. They have no idea where it went. They don't know if she buried it. They don't know what the fuck she did with it. They have not been able to find it. There's nothing. Like, there's no receipts. Nowhere that she's been showing where this money went. So it makes you wonder what the hell was with the $1,000. I think... She did that and then came back and murdered him. And skinned him and did all that. Now, she cuts up parts of his body into pieces. Now again, as we see with a lot of these stories, you know, a lot of these cases, depending on where, where you research, sometimes things can change. Now I've heard it in some places that she cut up pieces of his buttock. I've seen some that it was pieces of his back. Um, not really sure. But she cooked up these pieces of meat. And served the meat with baked potatoes, pumpkin, beetroot, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy. She sets two settings at the table with notes beside each plate with each of his kids' names on them. She has prepared his body to be served to his children. <coughs> A third meal was prepared, but thrown out on the lawn. It was half eaten, suggesting that she had eaten this and couldn't finish her own meal. And then another portion was given to, of the meat at least, was given to the dog. 
She then goes and lays near his body, his skinned body, which she had lain out with one arm laid over a soda bottle and legs crossed. And then she took the pills that knocked her out, thinking that they'd kill her. Or at least trying to give the um, illusion that that's what she was going for. Now, when she woke up at the hospital, um, the police questioned her. They tried to, and she swears, I have no memory. I, didn't, I don't know what the hell happened. I don't know what you're talking about. So she pulls this whole amnesia thing about the previous night. Or about the night in question. Because if I remember correctly, I believe it was about four days before they could actually question her. So it wasn't it wasn't that specific night. Um, she was taken off to the hospital because they thought, you know... Well, I mean, they knew that she did it, but they, they thought that, you know, maybe she might have been a victim of something as well. Now, upon their search, the police found Price's head boiled in a pot of veg on the stove. Still warm. Which actually indicated that the cooking had been had been taking place earlier in the morning. Um, they also find a handwritten note on top of a photo of, of John Price. And it was blood-stained and covered in small pieces of flesh. So it was obviously something that she had handled during all of this. And it says... And I'm going to mention in here... Again, she was not great with her reading and writing. So it says... Time to go back, Jonathan, for raping my daughter. You to Beck for Ross, for little John. Now play with little John's dick, John Price. Now the thing is, is that she's got, she spells his name wrong um, the first time, but not the second two times, or the other two times. She spells raping as rapping. She spells daughter as D-O-U-T-E-R. So it's like duder. Or doubter. Um, so you can see there where there's little bits of disconnects with her, you know, psychologically. Now, the letter was very ill-written due to this illiteracy. But it was stated that the accusations in the note were looked at but found to be groundless. So they were making it look like, you know, she was making it look like that John had actually raped her daughter and that this was all in in, um, you know, revenge for it and that, uh, you know, his kids had something to do with it too. And I, I don't know, but anyway, initially, um, Knight is offers to plead guilty to manslaughter or is offered to plead guilty to manslaughter. And this is rejected. And she was ugh, arraigned on March 1st of 2001. She enters a plea of not guilty. Now, due to her counsel being sick, everything got delayed. So her July 23rd trial was actually adjourned until a refixed date for October 15th of 2001. Now, 60 jury prospects were given the options to be excused due to the nature of the photographic evidence, as it was very, very graphic. You can only imagine how much stuff they had here. <coughs> Five took this option to get out of it. The witness list was then released. And at that point, even more dropped out due to conflict of interest and people they knew. Because in a court proceeding, if you've never been called for jury duty, 
you know, if you know someone involved in the case, you're out. If um, you know too much about a case, let's say it's something that's highly publicized. If you know too much and you've seen too much in the news or you, or something's been very biased, you're out. You know, if there's something that, like here, the photographic evidence, there was going to be a lot. If you don't think you can handle it, you're out. So that's what dwindles these people down into how many people can actually, you know, watch and handle and whatever. So once she realized that there was going to be a jury full of her peers, like people her age, um, people who were all in that area, you know, then she pleads guilty. And the jury's dismissed. She's like, you know, all right, uh, that way I've got to, I've got to convince all these people. But if I, if I let them go and plead guilty, I, I might get a lesser, lesser charge for pleading guilty. The judge orders a psychiatric evaluation to determine her ability to understand her choice. Since she was claiming amnesia and disassociation, the psychiatrist considered her sane, but concluded that she suffered from a borderline personality disorder. Now, she still refused to accept the responsibility of her actions, regardless of the guilty plea. Through all this, she's playing this up and trying to act crazy, okay? She's playing all this up because she's like, you know, if, they, if I look crazy, then... They're going to say, you know, reasons of insanity, and I might see little to no anything, or I'll go li live in a psych ward or whatever. Now, some point, and this isn't in my notes, this is just something that I remember. At some point, she tells her brother, you know, if I act crazy, then I'll get off on this. I just need to keep acting crazy. Now, at sentencing, her lawyers tried to have her excused um, to avoid her hearing the facts of the trial, but the judge refused. He was like, no, you know, you're acting like this is actually going to bother her? Are you kidding? She's the one that did all this. Now, when the descriptions of the decapitation and the skinning were read, she actually becomes hysterical and actually has to be sedated. And again, I think all this was acting. Now, on November 8th, Justice O'Keefe pointed out that the nature of the crime lacked remorse and required a very severe penalty. So she was sentenced to life in prison, imprisonment. Now, usually you hear something for a non-parole period. So you get 30 years to life with a possibility of parole after 25 years or, you know, something along those lines. Now, they usually do this in cases with men because men typically will have more horrific cases against them. Now, but with hers, she was the first in Aussie history for a woman to receive this sentencing. And her papers were marked with never to be released. Not just a life sentence, but never. <laughs> To be released. Under no circumstances does this bitch get to leave. Like, she's here till she dies. Now, June of 2006, she tried to appeal this life sentence, claiming that the sentence was way too severe for the crime. But, obviously, this was all dismissed. Because they're like, how can you say 
that life is too severe for this crime. Like, you took a life, and not only did you take a life, you did all these horrible, disgusting, crazy things to his body. Like, what the fuck? No. You're stuck in jail for good. Now, still to this day, as she still sits and and rots in that fucking prison, she tries to maintain her innocence, innocence and refuses to accept responsibility for her actions. Now, I will post the pictures of her and John and, you know, some of the crime scene photos and, and things. Nothing too explicit on his. Um, there are pu little puddles of blood and things like that, but there's, there's no pictures of him because that, that would just, I think even that would be too gruesome for myself. Um, but then I'll find and I'll, I'll post a picture of her now. She does not look like the same person at all. Prison has definitely not been good to this crazy bitch. But she supposedly attends church every day and sings in the choir and blah, 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 blah. Crazy motherfucking bitch can stay in prison and rot in hell. Like, at this point, I mean, come on. How in the hell? I'm surprised they don't have her working in the kitchen. But anyway, that was my case for today. That one was a wild ride. Um, I really, really hope you guys enjoyed this one. This is one that that really kind of pulled me pulled me in because it's not often that you hear women committing such heinous crimes, and hers was so unspeakable. <laughs> But then again, you look at her child life, you look at her early life, you look at the things that she endured, you look at the things that she kind of didn't have a chance, but at the same time, even though someone doesn't have a chance in life, they are the ones that make the decisions to do the things they did. So don't really feel sorry for her. Like there's a part of me that says, you know, hey, her early, early life sucked bad for her. Wish she had somebody there to kind of pull her from that and show her it wasn't normal, but at the same time, man, you're the one that made the fucking decision to do it. So, rotten fucking hell. So, with that being said, that is the end of the episode. I'm glad I was able to get this into 30 minutes. There were other things that I was not able to get in. Uh, it's 30 minutes. 30 minutes. An hour. So, um, you know, if... There's more that you guys want to know. Look her up. Watch all the documentaries. Like, there's a ton of stuff on, like, YouTube. There's other, um, other podcasts have covered her. Like, you know, it's just, it's a wild one. It's a really wild one. So, we're not going to see as much stuff here as they probably do in Australia. And if you happen to be in the Australia... Uh, or in Australia, you know, you probably know a hell of a lot more of this case or or you have more um, documentaries and stuff there. I do know that uh, my brother has a friend that actually lives in Australia and I, I hope to goodness um, that he, you know, will listen to the podcast and start telling people about it. But um, he knows for sure about this case. A lot of people, a lot of people in that country know. So um, anyway... Off to the next one. Uh, I will see you on the next episode. Hope you guys enjoyed this one. And be ready 
for the next one. Um, I think that one's one that's been seen in uh, the limelight a little bit. And I think you'll be excited to hear about that one. So if you have any questions, if there's anything that you need um, to relay messages, add anything to it, um, whatever, you can email me at SerialZombieMoms uh, at gmail.com or you can reach me through Facebook and Instagram off of my posts um, for Serial Zombie Mom Podcast. And I look forward to hearing from you and I look forward to, um, you know, finding out anything extra that you'd like me to cover or so on and so forth. So have a great one. Thank you so much. And I will see you on the next episode.